This UCSD TV program is presented by University of California Television. Like what you learn? Visit our website or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest programs. We are the paradoxical eight. Bipedal, naked, large-brained, long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves, aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. Uh, I just have um, some brief uh, concluding or wrap-up comments uh, that I'd like to, um, to make, making some observations. We've, we've come a long way in this symposium uh, across uh, an extraordinary range of, uh, of time scales, probably uh, a greater range of time than has been uh, attempted by any CARTA symposium, I would, I would suspect. Um, and I'd like to, uh, given that we have made this transition from the, uh, from the study of human evolution and paleoclimate uh, to, uh, to the, the present and predictions about the future, I'd, I'd like to um, take us back to, um, to Carta's mandate to understand, understanding where we come from and to try to provide that, uh, my wrap-up comments, um, as a way of framing uh, what we have heard in the last several talks. Um, I would have, um, I think, five um, observations um, that arise from the study of human origins that are worthy to uh, consider in the, the context of uh, the human present and, uh, and future. I mean, there are many, many more observations that could be made, but these focusing on the, uh, the specific topic of, uh, of this symposium. Um, the first, as we examined uh, early on, is that the, uh, uh, the predecessors or the adaptations of our predecessors, um, not just their physical appearances, but also their behaviors, their, their, their ways of life, 
uh, evolved in a Earth that was trending in particular directions toward drying and cooling, but also in a very, uh, in a highly dynamic world, uh, a, a world of dynamic climates, of dynamic landscapes, changing resources, um, changes in social surroundings, and so on. And so many aspects of the, the CARTA mission uh, explore these, uh, these, these areas. Uh, that's the first. The second is that the, uh, the baseline adaptations of our species evolved embedded in ecosystems, embedded in the dynamic uh, environments and, and climates that those ancestors of ours um, encountered. The fundamental charge of um, paleoanthropology, the study of human evolution, is to understand how human qualities, including our capacity for the diversity of cultural histories that uh, have unfolded over the past thousands of years and are, of course, uh, unfolding now, that these qualities have emerged in the natural world um, in or by the processes of nature. So, in other words, what the takeaway message there is that humans are integral to life. Humans are integral to the history of life, and that is inescapable, and it's inescapable in the Anthropocene. Uh, third, uh, the overarching narrative of uh, human evolution um, has significantly changed. It is a change from a worldview and a story of how the human lineage came to supposedly have control and dominion over some primordial ancestral environment, mastery of that environment. Um, and it is... Uh, come about through scientific studies, particularly looking at human origins in its environmental context, uh, to a story of evolving uh, resilience, adaptability, and persistent change in the challenges of survival. Uh, with regard to my own research, I used to see, like so many others, uh, Africa, the place where I do my, my, a lot of my field research, as the uh, cradle of humankind, a kind of a nurturing uh, image. Um, the cauldron of human evolution is the term I now uh, prefer, uh, reflecting the, uh, the churning process that defined the line between survival and extinction in the era of human origins. The fourth point follows from that, uh, that third one, and that is that the ways of life of our evolutionary ancestors and cousins have come and gone. Uh, extinction has involved not only the end of gene pools and lineages, it has also entailed the demise of ways of life. So, for example, while Homo erectus was uh, almost certainly an ancestor of, uh, of Homo sapiens, the way or ways of life of, uh, of erectus uh, are no longer around. And out of a minimum of, uh, depending upon whether, again, this term lumper or splitter, but how you divide up the, uh, the fossil record, uh, but out of a minimum that most paleoanthropologists recognize of 18 different hominin lineages that have significant time depth to them, only one lineage, of course, our species, survives. All the other ways of life of earlier hominins have gone extinct, even though each species possessed at least some of the unique distinguishing qualities of our species. Now, I have come across people who have said, yeah, but we're around, and that's, you know, that's, that's cool. Well, if anyone sees that 
as good, it must involve a very jaded view of biodiversity, including biodiversity in our own evolutionary tree. The ways of life of our ancestors and evolutionary cousins were sustainable, but only for a time, and they ultimately came to an end. And fifth and finally, Homo sapiens lives in the world by altering it. It is our survival mechanism. Even simple interactions with the environment as we look back through prehistoric time and making of a stone tool, moving resources around the environment, managing fire, building shelters, planting a seed to try to secure food. All of these basic activities change the immediate surroundings. And this way of life, essential to all human beings today, no matter where they live on Earth, was so successful that it spread worldwide. And so now we find ourselves where the planetary scale of human influence is unquestionable. We have the rapidity of change in landscape that uh, may be quite different from anything that has ever been experienced before. In evolutionary history, the planet is packed with people and our ways of changing our immediate surroundings and also surroundings that affect people in terms of the atmosphere and the ocean in places affect people that we have never met and will never meet. And so this afternoon we have heard evidence and arguments that are grounds for pessimism and optimism about the future. And whether the glass is half full or half empty, I think that we have before us a grand societal project, and that grand societal project is to be carried out by the first species that has awareness of extinction, including its own extinction, but it's also the extinction of, of other forms of life on Earth. Uh, we are um, aware uh, of human societies uh, on all parts of the, of the globe, and we are connected to them. It seems to me that many of the problems that we have addressed here um, haven't yet brought up the matter of whether the scale of the problem can be matched by the scale of our compassion. We are a species capable of developing principles of living in a purposeful and meaningful world and acting according to those principles and, and values depending upon how much we care. The future will be a world of our own making. That's who we are. I'd like to thank my wonderful colleagues who have made presentations today, and we're very eager to open up the conversation with you all. Thank you for being a terrific audience. So this is the moment in which I act as your master of ceremonies. And uh, we have uh, had a tremendous number of responses to the questions. And uh, I had to exercise the chairman's privilege and select a few that I thought were of general interest. And I also tried to make sure that everybody got asked a question. And so uh, I'm first of all going to ask the, the person who's, to whom the question is directed to come up here and give the answer from here. So uh, we've got a, a surprisingly uh, interesting list of questions. The first one is the simplest to ask, 
and maybe one of the more difficult to answer, and is for Professor Ublin, and it's simply, did Homo sapiens kill Neanderthals? Yeah, that's a simple one. Um, well, the answer is probably, occasionally. Uh, this being said, there are many ways to take the land and the resource of other people than killing individuals. Um, this is a little bit politically incorrect, but we, we like to think on hunter-gatherers as a sort of eco-pacifist or people living in equilibrium with other groups and etc. But um, we know that chimpanzees go to war sometimes and modern humans did quite well. So it would be very surprising then between the common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans and modern humans, nothing similar happened. But this being said, we don't have any direct evidence of that. Thank you. So here's one uh, for Dr. Dimenokal. Uh, can you come up? There you are. Uh, here's one. Are ocean currents changing fast enough to impact human existence? In other words, the shifting monsoons resulted in wiping out ancient civilizations. Are ocean circulation things going to do the same? Changes going to do the same to us? Uh, that's a great question, whoever asked that, and thank you for that. Uh, so actually, a colleague of mine, uh, Richard Seeger at, at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, where I work, has actually addressed that very question. And um, the answer is yes, uh, that uh, changes in ocean currents, actually the changes in sea surface temperature distributions, where it's warming and where it's cooling, is uh, shifting where it rains, actually. And so um, that's one of the reasons why the American Southwest and somewhat for California is experiencing exceptional drought right now is, is due, to, due to changes in the ocean currents. So this isn't so much the overturning circulation as it is the wind-driven circulation. But nonetheless, uh, that, that is contributing to uh, uh, impacting our sustainability. So great question. Okay. Thank you. Looks like we're going to, I'll select a few more. Um, for Rick, uh, I've got a question for you. Um, it's a kind of a chicken and egg question. Uh, was the development of agriculture, at least in part, a consequence of increased population no longer being supportable by the hunter-gatherer economy? Uh, that is um, a, a question that was, uh, in my understanding, um, was first addressed um, by um, an anthropologist, Esther Basarop, uh, a demographer and, um, uh, and anthropologist, who suggested exactly that, um, that it was a, a population pressure uh, kind of thing. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting um, when I think also of, of Jeff's talk and of um, Bill, Bill Ruddeman's talk um, is to re re recognize that um, the origin of agriculture didn't happen just once. There were multiple centers of, of agriculture and that there were um, – uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to say that, well, because um, – 12,000 years ago, for example, that there was one thing going on. I think that there may be um, uh, examples of how populations, due to the archaeological evidence, that populations were moving up and down um, ele different elevations and had quite an adaptable system. 
um, that there is only really one answer to whether population pressure is a uh, results in um, settling down uh, and domestication and the intensification of agriculture. Uh, when you look in, for example, in Mexico, the independent center of, uh, of agricultural origins in Mexico, you actually see thousands of years, uh, this is the work of Kent Flannery, but thousands of years where it wasn't just hunter -gather hunting and gathering or agriculture, it was actually mixed, and people were doing whatever they could to get enough food, uh, and to, uh, and in some ways, to, to, to buffer some of the seasonality differences, times of, uh, of dearth and drought. Uh, and so I think that we have to come up with a, a more meaningful and more, in fact, more complicated scenario that it's just population pressure that pushes agriculture and that it's a simple and easy transition. I'm going to, going to take one. Uh, I don't know to whom it is addressed, but the question is, do any of the changes in climate correlate with the geomagnetic polar shift? And what I do know from my earlier work in geomagnetism is the idea that there are occasions in uh, the evolution, uh, by the way, the geomagnetic uh, uh, pole moves around with about a 20,000 year cycle and it reverses direction. And during the period of time when it's reversing direction, the magnetic field of the Earth is very small relative to other times and that lets more cosmic rays into the lower atmosphere and there is a thought that that can affect, uh, affect populations of animals through uh, irradiation of their genetic material. So with that, I'm going to finish that one. Here's one uh, for Bill Ruderman. Uh, this one's kind of uh, going to provoke a little bit of discussion here. Um, the dating of the inception of the Anthropocene has political implications, which I'm sure you've struggled with. Does uh, moving the date back to the rise of agriculture 10,000 years ago dilute the recognition of the effects of rabbit a rapid carbon dioxide increase today? Uh, I don't think it changes any the mainstream view of what's been happening for the last 100, 150 years. The way I look at it, I'm a mainstream climate scientist. I look at the rise of carbon dioxide, methane, and temperature in the last 150 to 200 years as a sharp acceleration, the same as every, every other mainstream scientist what I would add to it is there's this long prior slow period where we're adding methane and carbon dioxide and we're not so much warming the earth as we're canceling a cooling, part of a cooling. So this is still the same way it, as, as it was before. We're just adding a, an earlier story. So... Uh... Here's one for uh, Jeff Severinghouse. How are our oceans suffering acidification, different rates, and how will our climate's marine terrestrial change? Yeah, th thanks for asking that excellent question. Of course, you know, this, as Naomi said, uh, this is the other, the other problem besides the other CO2 problem. CO2 is causing ocean acidification and, and quite separate from its climate impacts, of course. And that's a, a serious issue for many organisms that secrete uh, calcium carbonate shells. It's going to get harder and harder for them to secrete their shells. And 
Of course, the impacts are not uniformly distributed across the globe. They're much uh, worse in uh, the colder parts of the ocean and, and, and somewhat milder in the warmer parts of the ocean. And that just simply is because the uh, calcium carbonate uh, physical solubility is, is um, uh, much higher in the colder uh, parts of the ocean. Uh, so, yes, it certainly is uh, uneven. Um, it's effect going to wipe out um, the uh, deep dwelling uh, corals probably before it wipes out anything else. So, yeah, it's certainly part of the ongoing extinction story. Does that answer? Yeah. And I have another. Don't go away. Uh, as it turns out, I found another one for you. What was the cause of the moisture for the high snow load in the north during the last ice age? Was it the Arctic Ocean? Was that ocean and ice free? Um, probably not. The uh, Arctic Ocean probably uh, was covered by a, what we call an ice shelf, a floating glacial ice during the uh, last ice age. and So it, it wasn't a source of, of moisture. But uh, the, it's not so much that there was a lot of extra snowfall in the north so much as uh, it was a lot colder and so the snow didn't melt and so it stuck around. That's, uh, in fact, the accumulation rates that we see in the Greenland ice cores are about half in during uh, the glacial of what they are today. So colder equals drier is a good rule of thumb. Thank you. So uh, I have a, a question that I think, I, if I'm right, I can divide between two speakers. Uh, the first part of the question is how accurate are the temperature rise predictions for 2050? And I think that's one for Ram. But then what will the effects uh, be on vegetation and agriculture? That could be Dr. Hadley. So if you both would come up. Uh. Yeah, remember what Charlie said. Predictions are difficult, particularly of the future. So uh, in general, our climate model uncertainty is about the 90% confidence interval is plus or minus 50%. Remember, of the, of, of the two degrees, the planet has already warmed by 0.85. So you apply the uncertainty of plus or minus 50 to the projection. So when I say two, it could be one and a half, or it could be two and a half. I won't be alive for, if it's disproved, but that's... <laughs> so, oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> So the question uh, was, I believe, about forests and or vegetation and agriculture. And I'll answer the agriculture question first and say that, you know, the kind of the green revolution did a lot to feed all these people that we have on the planet. And really the only place that hasn't truly been transformed by the green revolution is Africa. And the reason it hasn't is because Africa is not one country. It's many countries. And each of the, we tend to think about Africa as a country, but those boundaries play a big role in how resources, particularly water and, uh, and infrastructure, um, move between those boundaries. And so in some places, there's been too much water for agriculture to really, the Green Revolution to take hold. And in other parts of Africa, there's not been enough. So I'll say that, that increasing temperature is only likely to exacerbate that. And from what I know about our, uh, our stocks of seeds and the wild relatives of our cultivars, we don't have 
right? We have limited, eliminated so many of the wild cultivars and the wild relatives of our crops that we don't have the genomic repertoire of the plants that we subsist on to, to really handle two to four degrees increase in temperature. Um, and then in terms of uh, vegetation around the world, I'll, I'll answer it in terms of not so much climate change, but deforestation. It, it's an enormous problem. And I, I have this extraordinary picture of the Amazon that shows, it's from a satellite photo, and it shows that you can define the boundary of South America, the Amazon, the boundary between the land and the sea, based purely on individual clouds. And it expresses that every day trees are respiring and releasing uh, oxygen into the atmosphere and including they're releasing water vapor. Every day trade winds come and they push those clouds up toward the front of the Andes where they then rise and come back over the Amazon as rain. In the absence of trees, the tropical forests there, there's poor soil and it's really difficult to get tropical forests to grow again. So our deforestation is actually feeding back. It's causing a state shift in climate, both locally and globally. Now I'm going to take a, a question for myself. And the reason is the question was so good because it pointed out the things that I should have said and didn't say. <laughs> and, and so I feel obligated to correct the record. And there are two of them here. Uh, the first one is... Uh, what you're calling a hiatus is actually a decrease in the rate of warming. That's absolutely true. The public calls it a hiatus. The science, climate science community has adopted the name to describe that period. But in fact, uh, the rate of increase over the last 17 years is probably about a third what it had been in the last uh, 25, in the previous 25 years or so. So that's correct. Then the second part was, in the past, there have been changes when the rate of warming increased. We just came out of one. It was surface temperature warming, and from 75 to 98, the temperature increased by about a half a degree centigrade. And then it decreased, increased by much less in the last 17 years, even though we were putting more energy from the greenhouse effect into the system. That energy was going deep into the oceans. So... In the past, have there been changes where the rate of warming increased? Yes. And in fact, uh, you could argue that the change that I describe is just simply a change that in the climate science world is called a Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which oscillates back and forth every 30 years or so, with the additional caveat that uh, greenhouse warming thinned the Arctic ice and created a much more rapid increase, uh, decrease of ice than we would have thought of. The other question is, uh, uh, we are aware of the effect of the Gulf Stream on Europe. Is there a similar ocean effect in the Pacific? And how does it affect climate and weather in North America? And actually, I showed both of them. The second, the Pacific one, is the El, El Nino-La Nina cycle. There are studies of tree rings that go back about 1,000 years and studies of lake sediments in, uh, in Ecuador that show during El Nino periods a great deposition of, uh, of mud at the bottom of the lake. The El Nino cycle has been with us for at least 5,000 years, and it leads to dramatic changes in the climate 
in Western North America, as I indicate. So the El Nino is to Western North America as the, uh, uh, as the Atlantic Oscillation is to Europe and Eastern North America. And we have the, and then if you're interested for the rest of the world, we have the, the North, uh, the East Asia and Indian monsoons are large climate cycles that have big impact. So, thank you for your indulgence. Uh, Rick Potts, here's one for you. Could we frame the legend of the Great Flood as a period of climate change leading to a large loss of population and a bottleneck leading to cultural evolution? <laughs> that's, not, that's an easy one, I think. In, uh, in March, um, I spoke at a conference convened by the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It was a conference attended by 100 scientists and 100 Christian evangelicals. And I thought we made progress uh, in uh, conversation and discussion. I'm not quite sure I can make progress in answering this question. Uh, but um, I, I, I think that the... Uh, the, like all um, narratives of, uh, of origin that uh, emerge out of uh, traditional uh, society and, uh, and traditional texts, that they often uh, take uh, something that is uh, unique to a particular region um, and maybe see their, that region, because that's all they know, as something that is worldwide. It's their cosmos. That's uh, and the essence of... Uh, of, of how we develop the powerful stories we do about how we relate to the world. Um, now we have, um, as part of our cross-cultural endeavor to understand one another, something that crosses uh, philosophies, cultures, languages, religions, and so on, um, we have at least one other avenue with regard to understanding this uh, uh, the story of uh, how humans, in a, a broader sense, uh, came into being, and when we put that into a uh, uh, into a climate perspective, yes, we see that uh, that there were times that were uh, far far wetter uh, than than others. Um, the the question, the part of the question that deals with the matter of bottleneck, that may be re re referring to the idea that geneticists have come up with some geneticists that there is either a very, very long period of time of very um, low effective population size, that is breeding population size. Uh, the group that comes out of, uh, out of Utah um, would say perhaps 10,000 uh, N uh, breeding population size, about 10,000 individuals. Uh, there have been then studies, uh, one published in PNAS, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in the late 2000s, 2008, I believe, um, that uh, looked at a whole variety of genetic biomarkers and suggested that uh, the effective uh, breeding population size of our species, from which all modern human genetic diversity, genomic, uh, nuclear genomic diversity arose, was from a, a breeding population size of perhaps 600. Um, yeah, we were perhaps once an endangered species ourselves. That should give us pause. Um, and so uh, the one thing that seems to be by many people who work in Africa, they do not see the explosion of uh, Mount Toba in Indonesia as being the driver of that, but rather that was a time of very strong oscillation between wet and dry cycles. 
and a number of us who have gotten uh, drill cores out of the ground to look at long climate sequences over the last 500,000 years are going to take a very close look at that. But that's as much of an answer as I have right at the moment. Uh, I'll try to come back in a couple of years and tell you the answer. Thank you. Now, uh, I'm going to close. We have several more questions, but I'm going to warn all the speakers at the end that I'm going to ask them to come here and give a brief answer to the last question. And so, uh, so here's one, and I think, I didn't quite know how to ad address it, but I think I will address it to Ram. Yeah. Re recent results in behavioral economics says humans aren't rational. How do we design strategies for survival as a civilization that tra transcend national and cultural limitations? Charlie, I clearly told you my origin is in quantum mechanics. <laughs> I th yeah, it's, I, I, I don't know if I'm really qualified uh, to answer this. Certainly, uh, I suppose the behavior issue, I, 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 I don't know if I can touch that, but clearly what I would emphasize is what we concluded, and you were there at the uh, Vatican workshop, thinking about the sustainability issue. Remember, it brings in intergenerational equity, generations to come, we are damaging the planet, and intragenerational equity, which is what few of us are doing is going to negatively impact. There it's clear we fundamentally need to change our attitude towards nature and to each other. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you make that happen? Maybe a social scientist could tap into the rational part of our brain. Uh, but I certainly think this is really in the domain of the religions. They talk about morality, and this is a moral issue. We all have to change our behavior. So I would more appeal to the religious leaders to help us out than appeal to the rational part of our brain. And... Uh I would just add that one theme that lodged in my mind from that great conference goes something like this. The society that, can, that uh, uh, cares for all its members will also care for all the environment. And if we don't do that, they both will go down together. So uh, I now have uh, two questions for Naomi. Uh, one, uh, well, there's two of them, and then we'll end with our final question here. Uh, for you, Naomi, in light of Hansen's action and critical feedback uh, and the need for disruptive politics, as you argued, what is your advice to young scientists? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, it's a very good question. I, I think my advice to young scientists is this. We all have to do the interventions that we are able to do based on our personalities and our talents and our skill set. And if you're an aspiring scientist and you're good at science, then that's what you should be doing. And I don't, so I don't think scientists need to become politicians or you know, artists or something like that. I don't think that makes sense. But I do think that scientists have a very important role to play in terms of explaining not just the facts of the science, but what they mean for people's lives. And I do think the scientific community needs to do that 
because no one else really can. Well, historians of science can, but there just aren't very many of us. Um, so, so I think it's that explaining sort of, you know, what, is, what does the temperature rise of one degree mean? Most people have no idea. Uh, Governor Kulingowski of Oregon, who came here a couple of years ago when his son Justin was, work, was a student at Scripps, you know, he said, I go out into the countryside, I talk to farmers, and I say it's going to be two degrees warmer. Well, first of all, they think it's Fahrenheit. And then they think, oh, so instead of a 68-degree day, it's a 70-degree day. That sounds good, right? So it's that, that translation of the science into its human meaning is really, really crucial. And I think that all scientists can contribute to that. Thank you. And this next question is a precursor to the final one. All right. And while Naomi is speaking, I would like to ask all the speakers to come to the <coughs> front. And you may or may not wish to answer the question I pose, or has been posed, but I would like you up here, please. So Naomi, for you, given the conclusion that we could all have a mass extinction in the 21st century, how do you determine that humans will not also become extinct? Well, it's certainly possible, and uh, never say never, but um, if you look at the history of the geological history that Liz Hadley showed us and that many of us are familiar with, I mean, there have been five mass extinctions in the history of the planet, four and a half billion years. So that means statistically, the odds of a mass extinction any time in our lifetime is extremely low. Um, although, as some people have argued, we may be facing a sixth extinction based on what we are doing to other species on this planet, but that's a sixth ex extinction in which we survive but wipe out all of these other things. So it's not that it isn't possible that it could happen. It's just not very likely, and I don't think it's really the relevant question because if we're thinking about ourselves and our lives and the interventions that we can make as people living today, really the big question facing us is the next 100 years. It's what happens between now and 2050, whether we stay below that two-degree limit or head towards four degrees and beyond. And the consequences, the difference between staying below two degrees versus going to four, five, six, or beyond are very, very grave. And so I really think that's the question that we need to focus on. Thank you. Okay, gang. Uh, now, here is the, here is the question and I'm going to ask you to think of a brief answer, uh, but it will sort of be a yes or no question with a couple of sentences as to why you think so. All right, so here's the question. After this insightful and informative symposium on climate change, should we walk away more hopeful or less hopeful? <laughs> Somebody That's want easy. to give it a try? The answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I'd like everyone to give it a try. Oh. <laughs> I, I think we should go more optimistic. Uh, let's, go the uh, uh, let's use the microphone, yeah. I, I think we should go more optimistic because there is a global awareness of, of the problem, of course. I think that because you're here, that's hopeful for me. Um, generally, I'm pretty depressed about the state of the world. <laughs> Um, but I would say, I'll, I'll say that one thing I didn't tell you about, although uh, Ron really gave a nice example of, is that I think that we need to look for our inspiration to the three billion people that are living below poverty. And it's not so much that they should look to us, but we should look to them because they're leapfrogging technology and they're showing us how well we can do with little. That's what gives me optimism in the world. 
I, I strongly endorse what Dr. Hadley said, absolutely. I, I'm certainly very hopeful. Remember, don't forget, it's a $450 problem, just climate change. Looks like we're all optimists here. Uh, I, my view is really simple, is that um, I think we have to be optimistic. And the reason why is that uh, any other view is just too depressing. I mean, I think it's, Im <laughs> it's, it's, Im it's impossible to tell the lowest, you know, the, the lowest three quarters of the world's population that things are going to be worse for them than they are already, because they're already pretty dire. And so we have to not only envision a future that's better, but we actually have to make it. So. That's my view. Well, I, I'm, I'm an optimist, too. I believe that this is a, actually very uh, hopeful situation in many ways, and partly because if you look back at history again, um, I love, love history, so it, the, the whole um, recognition of disease as a, a problem having to do with you know, public health and sanitation, uh, that didn't happen overnight. There were public health advocates that were working for maybe half a century, maybe even a whole century before we got, uh, you know, sewer, sewage treatment systems. And so, you know, I, I like to tell my, the audiences I speak to that there's no such thing as Republican sewage treatment and Democratic sewage treatment. Everybody's in favor of it, right? So that's kind of the way to look at this problem. You know, it, it's, uh, it didn't get solved overnight, but we're going to get there. I've gotten this question a lot over the last 10 or 12 years, and I have a, an answer that's uh, well-rehearsed, but it's changed a little bit. I usually start off by saying I was born a naive idol, idealist, and I aged into a gentle cynic. Uh, <laughs> I, my assessment of human, the level of human selfishness, there are plenty of wonderful people in the universe, there are a lot of very selfish people, too, and so I think left to their own devices, pe people at large would not sacrifice to a solution, even though many of you may. Uh, I, I usually then say I don't get, uh, don't get asked to give inspirational speeches. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, the last couple of years, um, I've started to shift that uh, opinion, and that is... There are things happening technologically with uh, solar arrays and battery storage and a number of other areas that so far they're incremental, but they're accelerating. And I see po the possibility of something that's just absolutely transformative in the next, even in the next five years, much less the next 10 or 20. So I'm not quite the cynic that I was five years ago. I guess I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy. Um, in, in 2005, um, there was, uh, of course, the uh, on Christmas Day, there was the um, terrific uh, loss of life, 270-some thousand people, was it? I can't remember the exact number, but due to the tsunami uh, hitting uh, Indonesia. And there was a, um, a science reporter for the Washington Post who wrote an article a couple of weeks later saying that he had been at the December meeting of the American Geophysical Union. 
And he heard a talk which had a title that went on forever, which had words like subduction zones and things like this. And it described exactly what happened on that Christmas day, exactly. And the, the Washington Post science writer said, the only thing the scientists couldn't say is, run, run for your lives. <laughs> and, and I think that what that communicates to me and I hope to all of us is that we, we won't make progress just simply, just only, uh, by trying to throw evidence, throw data uh, at, uh, at people and expect them to understand. Uh, data is no guarantee for, uh, uh, for caring. And, um, and no matter what we argue uh, from a scientific standpoint, is no guarantee for, uh, for caring and for acting. Uh, and so I am optimistic, uh, partly because we have the capacity, not only as scientists, but people involved in society and working with uh, young, young people and people from all walks of society uh, to activate a moral conscience uh, and a societal conscience uh, that makes use of the fact that we are a culturally contingent species. And that means that we have the ability to make choices and that we have the ability to act in ways that change life and lives and our understanding of our relationship to the planet. Uh, historians can point to, much like uh, Naomi did, to matters of uh, slavery, the, the end of, in South uh, Africa, the end of uh, apartheid, um, matters of, with regard to uh, global climate, uh, the, uh, the response ultimately to the, uh, to the ozone hole and the end of CFC use. Um, and actually the tipping point, go, go to use the, the term that Liz Hadley used, the tipping point in America, in, in society, in all of those societies, actually took years, just years to do, not 10 years. Uh, of course, it, there was a big buildup, but it took years to do. And I think that we have the possibility of doing that and developing ethics, morality, compassion, that is joined at the hip with the science that we've presented today. And as co-chair, I can only point out that Charlie was also a member of our panel today, and so he needs to answer. So uh, I think that uh, when you look at the, well, first of all, let's just realize that what you heard was scientists speaking today. And we all live inside our disciplines, and we all live inside a limited sphere of knowledge. But we're all pessimistic, it would seem, because to a person, I think, in the sustainability arena, each of us would say, within our limited perception, that we've never seen problems quite of this scale. And more than that, nobody's listening. Those are big problems. And so we're pessimistic. But you have to step back from the structured knowledge that we've tried to relay to you and think more philosophically. We're thinking about the next century, but I'd like to point out uh, the tremendous problems in the last century that our grandparents and parents solved. They solved, they grew, the century started with terrible mass warfare conflict between dictators, much reduced. 
The nuclear threat, unprecedented, much reduced. Um, colonialism, gone, to a large extent. And, uh, and finally, um, we began to solve the fundamental problem of the third world, and we now have set, as a civilization, the forbidden on the way to a decent way of life. So these are enormous transformations in society that took place that no one in the year 1900 could have predicted, much less the airlines and space travel. And so I count on the creativity of human beings, this enormously competent culture that we all live in. I count on increased con connectivity in that culture, and that, that con connectivity is sustained and, and, and propagated by our concern for each other and the ethical concern that we will develop for ourselves as a civilization and for our climate and, uh, and environment as a whole. So with that, I uh, commend you for st staying with us, a complicated and long and very informative technical uh, discussion, and I hope you'll give all our speakers a chance uh, and, and uh, some applause. And then the last word is I'm Margaret Schoeninger. I'm one of the co-directors of CARTA, and I want to just thank everyone. I would like to start, really, with our, our uh, co-chairs. That was just a phenomenal series of presentations that you have put together. Um, I would also like to um, speak to the, the speakers. Each one of you, I think the thing that struck me was how integrated you were even though I don't know that you knew that when you started, but it, it brought us a sort of a whole piece of something, and I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, and I will also thank our supporters. I mean, there may be many of you in this room, but there are many people who are our supporters who are not in this room, and so I want to thank the people who have supported us. And finally, I want to thank the audience and I also want to say that those were the best set of questions I think I have heard at a CARTA symposium. So I want to thank all of you for thinking at this through and asking some very stimulating questions. So I will now close and uh, thank you all for, and thank you all for a great speaking.